Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales Tales of the Justice Justice Society Society of America. America! And welcome once again to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Scott Gardner, and joining me once again, as always, my good buddy, Michael Bailey. Hey, how's it going? That's my Scott Scott Gardner. Okay. (laughs) It's going fantastically. How about you, sir? I am really excited, uh, one, that we're, we're back to doing this. Uh, we, we had a long conversation that was not appearing in the episode where we were making plans and uh, schemes and all that kind of stuff for the future of Tales. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just in, in between that, you and I have uh, <laughs> we've been really egotistical lately and have been listening to old episodes. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to recapture, get back in the groove, I guess, is the best way yeah. to say it. As the, as, the, as the kids these days say it, just trying to, you know, recapture i want to get the feel again you know because it has been as we mentioned before almost two by the way this occurred to me uh literally today as i was uh just kind of daydreaming about the show i had this thought okay so they're listening you guys are listening to this episode right now you know addressing the listeners here you guys are listening to this episode i imagine a good number of you are probably thinking to yourselves you know i wrote you assholes as soon as you came back i i I wrote in this glowing letter i took part of that little pseudo contest thing that scott kind of pitched out there why the hell haven't i heard my letter well the reason being is i I just there's no other way to say it we gotta let you guys peek behind the curtain okay so we had that comeback special right where we covered uh gl number 40 right Mm -hmm. and then you've heard probably what five six episodes something like that now you're listening to this episode here's the weird thing here's the here's the what do they call it the doctor wibbly wobbly wibbly wobbly timey wimey here you go here's here's the wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing for you this episode you are listening to right now is the next one Mike and I have recorded since the GL number 40 comeback. All those episodes in between recorded, God, what, Mike, like a year ago? Yep. Yeah. So that's why you haven't heard anything, because literally we haven't received it yet. See, it's t- time travel's weird, right? So please be patient. If you have written into us, we're, we're the same commitment we've always made is still in place. We will get to it. We will read your emails. So don't don't be discouraged if you haven't heard it yet because we literally have not received it yet. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, well, it's going to feel like an old episode, Scott, because uh, Boo is in here and she wants in my lap. <laughs> so we might get some uh, patented tales from the JSA snoring on Aww. the uh, dog snoring on it. So. Dog snoring, fart sound, whatever, however you want to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be a good daddy, so. Uh, I had one quick thing to throw out there because I'm just, hey, I'm I'm just proud of myself and I want to brag a little bit about this. Ooh, now, I know what you're going to talk about. Unlike you, I'm not filthy, stinking rich. So <laughs> oh, yeah, right. it's just taking me <laughs> all that podcasting money that's been pouring in all these years. No, I uh, it's taken me forever to finally get a copy of this, but I finally had a really good score. I scored volume three of the All-Star Companion, published by Tomorrow's Publishing. This is, uh, again, one of those big, thick books edited by Roy Thomas that talks all about, you know, of course, uh, the the Justice Society of America. And I, I really have not had much more of a chance than just to, like, kind of flip through the book, but it does look like it pretty much picks up and, in a lot of cases, elaborates on even more of the material that you and I are going to be covering on this show, specifically some of the crisis stuff, uh, JLA, uh, JSA crossovers, 
what else is in here? Just uh, a lot of, it looks like a lot of elaboration. There's a great article in here, again, all about uh, Gladiator and Hugo Danner and Philip Wiley. There's a section on the Young All-Stars. I'm really looking forward to this. So this leaves, uh, to my knowledge, there's only four volumes of this, right? Yep. So that leaves volume four. I just, at some point, need to track down volume four. So if anybody out there happens to see a volume four around on the cheap, uh, let me know. I uh, I definitely would like to get that one. But, again, i got to get it on the cheap. I got this, shipping and everything included, $10.13. So I didn't do half bad. No, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's got a nice Perez cover. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, uh, recreating the, the first meeting of the JLA and the JSA. See, I uh, thought that too, but doesn't the original cover? Isn't it the JL, JLA that's holding the seance, and the JSA is in the cloud? Yeah, well, this is just the version where basically the JSA all got together, smoked a lot of pot, and had a hallucination. <laughs> so that, it is a great Perez cover, though. It really is. Absolutely. The uh, the coverage of the JLA-JSA crossovers in there is a reprint and I think elaboration on an old issue of Alter Ego that I bought like back in 2001. Right. That had that covered all of those that has a that had a great JSA cover as well. So no, congratulations, sir. That's a great score. Thank you. I was very proud of it. And like I say, I can't wait to uh, to rip into it because it looks really, really good. I have enjoyed these books anyway. I, I read thoroughly the uh, first two that I already have, so I'm looking forward to this. Uh, just kind of delving in, hopefully learning some some new things I did not know before, which I, I expect to because the other books have really shown me that, you know, for as familiar as I felt with this material, there's all kinds of, at the very least, there's all kinds of backstory and, and behind-the-scenes goings on that I had no, you know, none of us really were privy to. Yeah, the the fourth volume covers Infinity Incorporated and Secret Origin. Ah, all of the all of the J, the Golden Age related ones that that uh, Dan, uh, Roy Roy and Dan Thomas wrote, and that's where when we get to Young All Stars, we're going to be talking about how one of those stories was actually supposed to be an Aquaman story, right? Uh, which I'm kind of looking forward to. Which actually I kind of discussed with um, Rob Kelly over on the fire and water podcast he had me on uh god i can't even begin to guess of how long ago it was uh, especially considering we're recording this now and it's going to be released in like 2 months <laughs> or something like that but he he wanted to talk about the earth 2 aquaman cuz it's his show we were basically putting the forth the argument that there was an earth 2 aquaman and apparently this started a fight uh, especially amongst the listeners of that show, of, of whether or not there really was an Earth 2 Aquaman and whose opinion really was the most important one. So. I thought there was one, but he, he showed up like minutes before Earth 2 was, was wiped away forever by the crisis, yep. didn't he? Yeah. Yep. But the argument is is that it's something Roy Thomas wanted, but the powers that the, the prevailing wisdom among editorial was that he didn't exist. So it was just it was just one of those basically it sounded like a giant pissing contest. Right. Uh, so, you know, the more and, and I don't know if you've had this experience especially in the last couple of years, the more we find out about the behind the scenes shenanigans of how our favorite comics were created, the more you're just like Wow, I was better off never knowing that. Yeah, you know, it's it's really funny you say that, but it is true because I remember after I finished uh, Marvel: The Untold Story, as much as I thoroughly enjoyed that book and think it would make a fantastic movie, at the same rate, that is the feeling I had walking away from it was, you know, I was really better off believing all the uh, Stan soapboxes and everything that I'd read <laughs> over the years that it was just one big happy bullpen, you know. I, I like that fantasy ideal better. I, I had thoroughly believed it all these years, and then to find out that it's just a bunch of, uh, you know, your typical corporate bullshit with a bunch of backstabbing and and really some cutthroat things going on, and especially in the seventies when with the the leapfrogging of editor and chief. Yeah, you know, there were there were that. feuds and infighting and backstabbing and backbiting and just. You know, things that in some cases continue to this very day hurt feelings and sometimes outright destroyed lives. And it's like, 
you know, <laughs> I just wish I didn't hear, know any of all, all this stuff. So I, I completely I understand exactly what you mean, because uh, it, it gets weird because it's to the point now where sometimes I'll meet creators at conventions where I would have liked to say, hey, how did you enjoy working with so-and-so? Or I loved your work on this book with so-and-so. And now it's like I have to stop and think for a minute. Wait, is so-and-so somebody that they have an active feud going with? I have to re- you know, rack my brain to remember the latest gossips and stories that I heard because you know, there's so many of them that, that do uh, have something active going. You know, they don't get along with so-and-so or, you know, it's just, it just gets really weird and bizarre because to me, these guys all uh, lived and loved and played together, you know, well, and, and function like a family unit. So it's, it is very strange. That's why we've been lucky over from crisis to crisis that, uh, at least in the time period of what we're covering, so far, it seems like all the creators got along. So right. When you talk to them, there's there's like happy memories and stuff like that. Right. So. <laughs> but speaking of untold stories, what are we covering tonight? <gasps> we are going to be taking a look at a classic of sorts. This is uh, the <laughs> well, all... some. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it depends on how you look at it and how you define classic. But uh, we are looking at All-Star Squadron Annual... Number three. Uh, And I am taking the lead on this because we actually split it in half because it's such a large book and we're both lazy. So, (laughs) All-Star Squadron. I almost said All-Star Comics because, you know, I remember the... It's been so long since we've done this, I have forgotten the name of the comic that we're covering. (laughs) (laughs) But this is All-Star Squadron Annual Number Three starring... The Justice Society of America. And it's right there on the cover with that uh, logo that came out in the late 70s that we uh, probably talked about uh, ad nauseum mm-hmm. um, when we were covering it. It is the 1984 annual. And how can you tell that? Well, outside of the fact that 1984 is actually written on the cover and it was a dollar twenty-five. All of the annuals from around this time period, I think in 83 and 84, uh, had this kind of trade dress, where on one side you had the DC bullet, you had annual in the middle, and then you had ni- the, the, the year and the issue number and the cover price uh, on the other side. If it sounds like I'm vamping for time, it's because I forgot to write down the release date of this thing, and I had to go to the uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics to get that. This was on sale... June 14th, 1984. I was eight years old. Wow. <sighs> Such a young wicker, wicker snacker? Wicker yes, snacker. That, that's exactly what it is. Wicker tastes horrible, by the way. Now, the credits on this bad boy uh, read like a who's who of comic book creators and stuff. It was written by Roy Thomas and edited, with Dan Thomas serving as researcher. Gene D'Angelo was the colorist. Cody and L. Lois Buhalis were did the letters. And do we want to make the Cody uh, Star Child joke? Or <laughs> no, we, uh, I think we should move quickly on. Rick Hoberg drew the intro and the conclusion Justice Society stories. Jerry Ordway drew the Tarantula and Wonder Woman intros, and along the way, you get Rich Buckler, Wayne Boring, Richard Howell, Carmine Infantino, Don Newton, B. Arthur, the 1972 Miami Dolphins, (laughs) Martin O'Dell, George Perez, Keith Giffen, Mike Macklin, Frank Giacoa, Charo, Bill Collins, and Joe Giello. Special appearance by Jamie Farr. There is no story title to this. I looked in the All-Star Companion Volume 2 to see if there was a story title. I looked at Mike's Amazing World of Comics. I figured I just missed it, because sometimes I miss stuff like that. So basically, I'm going to make up my own title, and that title is, This is the Story That Drives the Irredeemable Shag Crazy. (laughs) Because if you listen to the Who's Who podcast, he will bitch about this comic Every time the story is brought up, we open on John Law, the Tarantula, and the man with the least subtle name ever. 
I mean, seriously, why don't we just call him John Crime Stopper or something? <laughs> anyway, the tarantula chases down a group of fifth columnists, and things are about to go south for the novelist turned mystery man when who shows up to bail him out? Well, if you said Wonder Woman, you'd be right. They beat the Ratsies down and examine the file case they were carrying. Inside, they find a folder with some old newspaper clippings and what looks like a handwritten note. John can't read the documents, but sees a reference to the Justice Society. So the two heroes decide to take everything back to the Parisphere, where they use Wonder Woman's magic sphere to watch a meeting of the JSA that took place on June 28, 1941, and... If you're like, wow, that sounds like before the All-Star Squadron was formed, well, it was. In that meeting, Green Lantern calls things to order and brings up their most recent mission. Get one million dollars together to donate to war orphans. To accomplish this, each member had to somehow get a hundred thousand dollars. Each member tells how they managed to accomplish this until they get to Johnny Thunder, who just proves how useless he is when he realized that he wasn't able to get any money together at all. Sandman and the Atom ball him out over this, and for some reason Green Lantern takes pity on him and lies to Johnny's face saying that they were just kidding when we all know, no, they <laughs> no, weren't. No, he was not. Since this is Johnny Thunder, at some point the words say you come out of his mouth, and since everyone knows that summons his Thunderbolt, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise to find out that Johnny's offhand comment about Superman, Batman, and the Flash helping out, even though they are honorary members, comes true. Green Lantern and Dr. Fate gather up the money and go blow it on hookers and coke. <laughs> well, actually, they, they take it to the White House to personally give it to FDR. Blows it on hookers and coke. <laughs> uh, even though it's like midnight. It's a good thing, too, because they find two shadows menacing the president and manage to fight them off. And FDR probably says something like, We only have to fear is, oh God, oh, <laughs> it's shadows. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what happened, but I just wanted to, like, play it out in my mind for a second. The shadows turn back to men, wanted men, as Green Lantern points out, and after some debate, Dr. Fate magically compels them to tell the heroes and FDR who sent them. They finally spills the... spills the beans? They finally spill the beans. It was Ian Carcool, an old enemy of Fate's that was thought to be dead, but come on, this is comic books. The criminals burst into flames for their trouble, and instead of feeling bad that they got two men killed, Green Lantern rescues a piece of paper. It may be burned, but they can still make out a list of names with supervillains listed next to them, with Roosevelt saying to not worry about him, Don't worry about me, G. Island Dr. Fate! They race back to the JSA HQ, where they tell the rest of the team what just happened. By sheer coincidence, all of the villains that were on the list happened to be old foes of the assembled heroes. With a hail and hearty for America and democracy, the heroes rush off, leaving Johnny behind in case the FBI calls with any clues. At, at least that's what they tell them. <laughs> we know it's because they secretly can't stand him, but GL once again, what is up with GL? He tries to make the useless waste of space feel better. Meanwhile, Karkul sends off his group of villains. And this is this is like an all-star group of villains you've never heard of. We have Dr. Doog, the Catwoman. Okay, you've probably heard of Catwoman. You may have heard of Wotan, uh, but Seer Satan, Alexander the Great, the Lightning Master, the Tarantula, and Zor? I mean I mean I mean if you're you're Mike Voyles, you know who these guys are. And if you're John Wilson, you know who these guys are, but I, I doubt most of the rest of the listening audience does. Sending off these villains will go a long way towards casting a long shadow over the history of the United States. Uh, first up is Superman, who is dealing with a nosy, and as Michael Bradley would attest, bat-crazy newswoman Lois Lane faces off against his old foe, the Lightning Master. The Master's attacks are surprisingly effective, and as much as I hate to admit this, Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt arrive on the scene and give Superman the reprieve he needs to summon up his strength and take the Lightning Master down. After making sure Lois gets to safety, uh, safely to the ground, and ascertaining that the Lightning Master doesn't know why he was asked to do what he did, the heroes return to JSA HQ. 
In a pretty badass two-page spread, we see Hawkman and Hawkgirl take down Alexander the Great, the Spectre drop an elbow on Zor, and the Titanic team of Adam and Sandman beating the snot out of the villainous Tarantula. Meanwhile, the Flash arrives at Fort Lewis and tells the Sentry that on orders from the President, no one can go on or off base. As luck would have it, Joan Williams was there with her father, and she joins the Flash as he takes out Seer Satan. Things return to normal at Fort Lewis, while Joan threatens to tell everybody that Jay has a hair trigger like a shotgun downstairs if he doesn't let her know what's going on. And folks, it may sound like I'm making that up, or trying to be pithy. No, it's right there in the dialogue. She basically threatens to say that he's bad in bed. It's kind of <laughs> funny, actually. In Hollywood, or Hollywood Land, Batman and Robin drive like madmen through the gate at the Warner Brothers lot, and after running through a few sets, find their prey, Catwoman. Catwoman sets a fire to distract them, but ends up saving the dynamic duo when another hitman tries to shoot them. She is injured for her troubles, and Batman leaves her care to the prison hospital. So Green Lantern's chapter is up next, and it's a very strange one. Green Lantern arrives at his destination at an idyllic-looking little town, but he senses it has been marked for destruction. Soon he is embroiled in a battle with Wotan. GL manages to psych the bad guy out and tags him butt good with a ring blast, but Wotan manages to fire off a wild shot of his own that, not kidding here, folks, causes a tree to topple onto and crush a child. Jesus Christ. <laughs> GL is pretty distraught about this, as you can well imagine, and even wonders if maybe this poor kid was Karkle's target all along. Feeling horrible about the situation and vowing to make Karkle pay, GL streaks off. Next up, the Hour Man, in a glorious chapter illustrated by none other than George Perez and Jerry Ordway together. This is where, in my opinion, the issue pays for itself right here, folks. Hour Man makes the scene in dynamic fashion, streaking super fast across the countryside, following weird power line emanations, and finally tracks his assigned foe, Dr. Doog. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if this guy's like easily distracted by squirrels. Anyway, <laughs> Dr. Duke <laughs> to his secret lair. Our man digs his fingers and toes right into the face of the stone tower containing Duke's hideout, and he scales it, smashes in the window for a really grand entrance here. But Dr. Duke proves to be no pushover. He unleashes some sort of deadly ray, uh, ray blast thing that incapacitates the man of the hour. And it looks like this could be it for our miracle uh, powered hero when suddenly Doog's machine is reduced to rubble as Starman arrives. Starman decks Doog and assists the injured hour man. Together, the two new friends, apparently this is their first meeting, Streak off together, bound for JSA headquarters, where Starman intends to apply for membership. In the Caribbean Sea, Dr. Fate prevents the death of a couple aboard a ship transporting fruit when their vessel nearly capsizes due, due to an Ian Carkle-created storm. Fate follows Mystic Energies, or whatever, to Long Island, New York, where, at last, he confronts Ian Karkle, in a house made of flesh. Blech. Karkle attempts to overwhelm fate with some sort of black goo and suck, uh, suck out his life force, but the helm of Naboo saves Dr. Fate by emitting a bright white blinding light. When his vision returns, the villain finds himself confronted by pretty damn near the entire full roster of the Justice Society of America. Now, as you might expect, it's ass-beaten time. He's zapped and roasted and, you know, all these different ray blasts are hitting him by the combined forces of the JSA until after another blast from the Spectre, he literally fractures into dozens and dozens of tiny little Ian, cute little Ian Carkle shadow people, and uh, he basically douses the JSAers in a wash of energy. They all feel it, this weird tingly sensation, and they wonder what just happened. Dr. Fate seems most effective of, of all 
when he suddenly collapses. But after a moment, uh, Fate's back on his feet, and he and the Spectre explain that what washed over the team was a surplus of time. Literally, the years, even decades in some cases, stored up by Karkul by the Shadow Forms. Now it's all been released, and it's settled on the assembled heroes. How will this affect them? What strange results will occur? Dare I say it? Only time will tell. At the very least, says the Spectre, they may expect that their lives have been prolonged by this exposure, and they'll have increased vitality. Meanwhile, our man's not feeling so good, and he announces that he's taking a leave of absence uh, until such time that he can devise a form of Miraclo that doesn't have such nasty, you know, basically drug habit side effects. Starman volunteers to step in to fill the hole in the roster, but the Spectre says that uh, they should do that properly, uh, you know, at a later regular meeting. They ask uh, what GL, the chairman, thinks about that, but he says that based on what happened today with that kid and everything, that uh, he, he too wants to take a little bit of time off. So he resigns his position, dropping back to honorary membership status, and then he just kind of flies away. He's not the last one. Dr. Fate also suggests that he may be stepping away for a while, too. And as this chapter of the story illustrated, he feels that the Helm of Naboo has been attempting to gain more and more control over him and that his human persona is at risk of being superseded by Dr. Fate. Saying this, uh, or saying that this may be the fi uh, Fate's final battle, he, too, streaks off into the sky and he's gone. So the team are left to ponder just what was the bad guy's plan here anyway? How did Karkle intend to alter America's future? And we're left believing that the world may never know. But as the team walks away, we, of course, along with Wonder Woman and Tarantula, remember them from the beginning of the story, <laughs> they're still looking at uh, Wonder Woman's voyeuroscope or whatever the hell it's called, and uh, they see this file folder left behind on the ground. The file folder contains news clippings about nine people. Who are these nine? And what effect will the death of one of them uh, have on the future? So Tarantula resigns himself to just waiting to see what the future eventually reveals about this case, but as he takes one last glance at the news articles scattered around the table, with stories about eight seemingly totally unconnected persons, such as Colonel Dwight Eisenhower, Senators Harry S. Truman and Lyndon Johnson, lawyers Gerald M. Ford and Richard M. Nixon, high school graduate Jimmy Carter, tourist John F. Kennedy, and actor Ronald Reagan, Tarantula is left with only one logical conclusion. Ian Karkle didn't know what the hell he was doing. And that's pretty much the end of the annual. Of course he didn't, because on Earth 2, none of these people were elected president. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that. But, you know, on Earth 2, anything is possible. So Absolutely. So, we have notes from the All-Star Companion, Volume 2, because, of course, it covered this. The last of the All-Star Squadron annuals. We've reached another milestone in the show. Oh, no more annuals. No, well, they've actually been uniformly pretty cool. Mm -hmm. so, even the one uh, where everybody's origin was tied together, which sometimes uh, doesn't really go any well, but right. it's really well there. <laughs> Anyways, the notes that Roy has crafted for this issue are, the story was co-plotted by Roy's wife, Dan Thomas, who researched what each of the eight post-FDR presidents was doing on or about June 28, 1941. Dan had also assisted Roy uncredited on the plots of other various All-Star Squadron stories. The single annual page penciled by Rich Buckler, showing that four JSA is in action, as per All-Star Comics number 8, was originally done for another project, possibly America vs. the Justice Society, which Scott and I will be covering. Mm -hmm. This story occurring right after All-Star Comics number 7 was devised to explain things that happened in between it and number eight, why GL stepped down as JSA chairman after only one session, why Our Man abruptly took a leave of absence and was unceremoniously replaced by Starman, why Dr. Fate's helmet became truncated between number seven and number eight, and his powers less magical. 
When Sandman fought a criminal called the Tarantula in Adventure Comics number 40, there was no masked hero of the same name. Yes, Virginia, the Catwoman really did originally wear a cat mask like the one shown on page 172 of the thing, and it's just, it's just goddamn ridiculous. That's <laughs> the best way to explain it. Yes, uh, that's an adequate description. Due to an engraving error, characters have light green flesh on several pages. Wotan, of course. Oh, is that what that was? I thought they were being like gamma irradiated or something. (laughs) That was going to be my joke, too. But then (laughs) I read read this and I was like, oh, there's an explanation. (laughs) Inker Ordway altered the S penciled by Boring on on Superman's chest insignia into the Earth 2 version adapted from early 1940s Fred Ray covers. So is that the origin of the altered S to distinguish between him and the Earth-1 Superman, then? Is that what they're saying here? Uh, I think what they're saying is that probably Boring originally just drew the regular S. Oh, okay, I got you. And Ordway altered it so that it would match up. Uh, Too bad Ordway didn't do that on several other appearances of the character. Since there wasn't room for solo chapters for every JSA air, Richard Howell drew a two-page spread showing what Hawkman with Hawkgirl, Spectre, Sandman, and Adam were up to. The that's fully good hooded... I didn't give a rat's ass, to be honest with you, so that's, <laughs> that's nice. Scott's uh, Hawkman venom is still uh, hot. <laughs> After all these years. The fully hooded Adam is amused by Starman referring to his own headgear as a mask, but the Mighty Might standards is definitely by the Mighty Might standards, it definitely wasn't one. No, it's a hoodie. I could make a joke, but it's too soon. <laughs> I mean, isn't it though? I mean, what would you call it? It's not a mask because it doesn't cover any. No, it's space, it's it's, so. it's like a like a like a hood. I guess that's yeah, the hood, best way yeah. to do it. Um, Wonder Woman became a member of the Justice Society months after what Sandman calls the JSA mission the world's not ready to learn about just yet. And this is where we learn that Sandman really wasn't responsible for naming their missions after this. So, <laughs> Apparently, there's a... Mar- Martin O'Dell drew the uh, Green Lantern section, which is right. good because he's co-creator of the character. Apparently he inked it as well, but the powers that be at DC decided that they didn't really like it, and they re-inked him. And looking at it, I think the powers that be at DC may have made the right decision. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's kind of funky. Yeah, it is. Because with all apologies to Nodell, GL looks, uh, he looks like he's 80 years old right there. And this is supposed to be GL, like, right at the beginning hey, of his Alan career, Hardy. right? Yeah. I noticed the same kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a problem necessarily, but the Carmine, Carmine Infantino pencil chapter about the Flash, I think he's clearly drawing senior citizen Flash there because that's, yeah. you know, that was the Flash appearing at the time elsewhere in the DC universe or multiverse. And, uh, I mean, that does not look like a young spry Flash at the beginning of his career to me. I uh I would like to add one note that isn't in the book, but maybe maybe uh maybe he left it out or maybe he just doesn't care. Um if you don't want us to um read a page before reading a story, please don't put it after page nine of said story. Especially where you have to look at the page. Uh because yeah, that why is the text page in the middle of the book? <laughs> I guess I guess is the better question. So <laughs> so what do you got on this scott oh my goodness uh let's see here vamp 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 as i pull up my notes <laughs> is that what you're calling it these days yes let's are those see. notes in your pocket or are you just happy to see me <laughs> let's see what we got here open up damn it this is what i get for doing it on the ipad instead of just plain old piece of paper all right. Oh, here we got a good one right here. Okay, so if you look at, and I'm sorry, I didn't make page notations already, so I'm going to have to look here manually real quick. But, okay, so there's that page where GL rescues the piece of paper from the fire, right? This page nine, yep. second panel. GL rescues the piece of paper that lists all of the villains and the destinations that they're headed to so that he knows where to dispatch the heroes to go stop this stuff, right? Okay. So the one for Lightning Master says, Hot Springs, Georgia. 
just kind of jumped out at me having, you know, lived in Georgia for such a long time and everything just kind of jumped out at me. But then you cut to Superman's chapter, which is starting on page 13 and Superman goes to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Okay, that's fine. But then he does actually find the villain there. I don't know whether this is like great job or whoa, that's why way too wild of a coincidence that both he and the villain are in the wrong hot springs, yet they still manage to find each other. Well, they're connected. I mean, I mean, he's a Superman villain. He's Superman. They both can't read maps. I mean, there you go. I just, uh, I, I thought that was a little bit odd. I don't. Did you make? Did you catch that as well? Or? No, actually, I didn't. Uh, now, but though every time I hear someone say Arkansas, I hear the song Arkansas from the musical Big River. So, <laughs> uh, let's see. You already mentioned uh, what's her name, Joan, and uh, Joan Garrick. Yeah, just what was she implying there, anyway? Oh, I, th- I think it's pretty clear yeah, exactly. what she was implying there. I mean, <laughs> the dialogue—the dialogue is not what I would call subtle. Um, uh, not on your life, lover. I know you and your JSA. This is a bigger—if this is part of a bigger caper, little Joni wants in, and I'll—or I'll tell everybody. Tell them what some of the other ways you're quick on the trigger. Whoa! <laughs> wow! Yeah. Oh man, that was funny though. Actually, I laughed like like out loud. So I liked Page. Well, I liked all of the Hour Man segment. This was definitely the highlight of the entire book for me. Was the hi- the uh, Hour Man segment? The art is fantastic. His uh, well, the only bad thing about this is that you know all of this is great lead up. He smashes into the villain's hideout, and then he's instantly taken out, which kind of, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't make him, you know, it doesn't have a very good showing for our man. But what I really liked about this, as far as the story itself, is that this finally seemed to address something that, for me, had been a long-standing question about our man. Something I never really understood was, is he literally an our man? Meaning, he, he's got this miracle thing, so for anybody that m- might not be familiar with our man, his gimmick is... He's basically just a regular dude, but he's just like super scientist guy. So he has these pills, these miracle pills that he can take, and for an hour, he basically becomes Superman. It's pretty cool. But my question always has been, well, how does this whole thing work? Is it only like a, an hour a day? Because that, for some reason, that idea always stuck in my head, that he could only do this like one time a day. So that says to me that you better pick your hour pretty damn accurately because once that hour is up, that's it. You're done. You know, you're going to have to wait Mm -hmm. until tomorrow to be able to do it again. I don't know why I had that impression, but that was the impression I always had, that he couldn't just slam Miracle tablets all day and be super all the time, right? So here, that actually is addressed because so he – he gets to the villain's hideout and he says to himself, he's thinking this to himself, it's time for miracle pills back to back and side effects be damned. So evidently he can take them back to back and just have another hour of power. I, I like that, that it explains that, well, yes, he can do that, but also that there are wicked side effects. Cause that's essentially what takes him off the table at the end of the story is that between slamming you know pills back to back and getting zapped but good by Dr. Duke, he's just a mess at the end of this story. And he decides then and there that you know I, I just can't keep doing this to myself until I figure out a way to create a miracle that's not just ravaging my system like a drug, which is essentially what it is. It's it's like a form of like super crack or something, you know, and it, it's just wiping him out. So I liked that. I, I liked that that was actually part of, you know, what is essentially this is one big giant retcon issue. Or, yep. or, or not not so much even a retcon, is like one big explanation issue. And amongst all the other big explanations, here's just a tiny little one. And I, I like that. I thought that was really cool. Dude, I would tell you what, I would so totally have bought 
a buddy team up book of Our Man and Starman done by Perez and Ordway back in the day. Oh hell yes. This section is fantastic. I, I this just makes the whole book for me. I mean there were definitely there were other sections of the story that I really liked as well. I, I think overall the art's pretty damn good through the entire book. Um the Superman section definitely jumped out at me because I've long been a Wayne Boring Superman fan. And to see Wayne Boring inked by Ordway is just that much cooler. So I like that section a lot. I liked the Batman section just out of pure nostalgia because when I was, uh, you know, first starting to collect Batman comics, uh, Newton did a lot of the Batman comics that I was collecting. So it was really cool to see that. And, you know, just some of the other sections in here. Uh, definitely this issue was more about the art for me than it was for the story. It's not a bad story, but I I can see why Shag might be down on it so much because I do remember that I knew this story before I read it for the same reason that that the story drives him nuts is that it was constantly (laughs) referenced in Who's Who. I do remember that. I think every single JSAer and All-Star has the same mention about the fact that, oh, by the way, the fact that, you know, they can still run around beating up bad guys when they're 115 years old is because of Ian Carkle. It's like, yes, I know that. (laughs) By the time you've read it 15 times, you pretty much have the idea down. Uh, Really, the last note I got on this is, uh, well, I don't mean to be so snarky about it, but I'm just going to put it this way. There's good Keith Giffen, and then there's not so good Keith Giffen. This tends toward the latter. Um, I loved Keith Giffen's original earlier, uh, Dr. Fate material. This here to me is, th- this is Giffen when he was kind of going into that really abstract, kind of trippy phase where, where it started to get to a degree where I, I just, I, I stopped being able to tell what the hell was going on. Yeah. If I yeah, had, it is it is starting into that mm-hmm. with this, which which actually kind of fit with the story that it was telling, right? In a weird way, because it was like trippy, moody artwork for a trippy, moody portion of the story. But right. yeah, I kind of I kind of preferred his original stuff with Doctor Fate. Yeah, in all honesty, I mean, I used to really consider myself quite the uh, quite the Keith Giffen fan, especially his Legion stuff. But even with his Legion stuff, you can see that somewhere after Legion 300, he started to mutate into this style right here, and I, I just don't care for it as much. They're, the lines are far too thick, and there are a number of panels that I look at, and I'm just like, I, I literally don't know what the hell I'm looking at here. And the the sad thing is, is it only got worse over time. He got to a point where there were entire issues that he did that I couldn't understand what visually what i was looking at and you know i mean it's it's fine for every artist to grow and experiment and do different things but he just was such a a unique yet classic artist in the beginning that for me i just always felt like it was a shame when he just went too trippy if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but that said it's it's funny because I, i think i mentioned to you this to you off the air recently I wasn't looking forward to reading this. I didn't remember it being very good, and, you know. But I've, I think I'd only ever read it just the one time when I originally snagged it. And again, I don't think I ever bought. I don't think I got this one off the stands. I think this was a back issue purchase. I just didn't remember liking it very much, so I wasn't looking forward to it. So quite some time ago, when you and I were starting to stockpile episodes, I read it again, and it was like, eh, that was okay. And I made some notes and everything. But then so so much time had passed that when it came time to do this episode, I had to read it again. So a third time. And it was like third time's the charm. It's like third time around kind of clicked with me. I kind of liked it a little bit better this time around. So eh, not so bad, but mostly, again, for the art. I, I think the art's really solid. And I like this combination of so many different classic artists. Because like you say, I mean, you look at the cover and it gives you a pretty good rundown of just about everybody who's in it art-wise. And man, what a what a who's who of the greats of the time. Absolutely. I like that. But that's pretty much all I got on it. Uh, I've always liked this cover. 
Uh, Batman's a little wonky, but I think everyone else looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially Superman doing the Superman number one pose, which yep. is actually from an earlier issue of Action, but I think that's sub-referencing too much. <laughs> uh, you will uh, now and, 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 and forever never hear me say anything bad about Jerry Ordway's art, and uh, yeah, this first sequence really... Really kind of made it to when we got to the Rick Hoberg section. It was a little bit of a letdown. Not a not a huge letdown. I mean, I'm not saying that Rick Hoberg did a bad job. It's just, I don't know, something about his artwork. Everyone looks like they've just, like they've been doing a lot of speed or something. Like, you know, on page six, that third panel where, uh, you know, Johnny Thunder is like kind of defending himself because he's such a useless piece of crap. Uh, I mean, he got to fight the air stats, Adam and Sandman. And really all he does is just say, say you, and the Thunderbolt does all the work for him. So. Right. But Johnny Thunder looks like I have been up for three solid days and all I've been subsisting on is Red Bull and trucker speed. See, so, um, I, I really like his art, but. The, you're, you're right. I think the problem is the faces. They, they're, they're a cross between chiseled and gaunt, and they look funny. They look like old men or something. Um, though, a, a page earlier on page five in that uh, fifth panel, I mean, fourth panel, Hawkman looks like he's just about to snap that dude's neck. <laughs> that guy is just going to freaking die in about 30 <laughs> Take seconds. Take back what you said about my mother. <laughs> Your mother laid eggs. <laughs> um, I I do like the fact that Green Lantern and Doctor Fate decide to just go to FDR in the middle of the night, which is apparently not odd at all. But good thing they did because you know they had to get those two guys killed. <laughs> the coloring mistake making everyone look green is kind of distracting at this point. Where is, uh, what the hell was Roosevelt's wife's name? Um, Edith or Ethel or whatever the hell her name was there. Where the hell is she in this? And you're right. They just materialized right inside the White House in the middle of the night in the president's freaking bedroom. <laughs> That's not a security issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's no security guards around, which, I don't know, maybe back then they didn't have it. You would think so, after, you know, how many presidents had been either assassinated or attempted to be assassinated by this point. You would think there well, were some security guards around. To Plus, be fair, in the late 60s, when my dad was stationed near Washington, D.C., he and his friends would go play touch football on the White House lawn. <laughs> so... <laughs> At one point, security was a little less right. than it is right now, where you can't go near it. Right. Still, uh, I'm I'm just wondering where uh, where Mrs. Uh, there was a Mrs. FDR, right? I'm not crazy thinking. Yes. That, right. Yeah. Yes. Because yes. she was referenced in that one issue we did, where the the story wound up at the end. It was like number four or something of All Star, where where at the end of the story they were on the Golden Gate Bridge and it had that quote by her. What the hell was her name? It's driving me nuts. I can't think of it. The uh, Eleanor. That's it. Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, where is she? Eleanor Rigby. Um, <laughs> um, probably in her separate bedroom. Ah, uh, okay. Just saying. Uh, don't want to get too far into that. Okay. But, uh, their marriage was odd. All right. From a historic standpoint. And she may have played for the home team. I gotcha. So, but all that's just, you know, stuff you see, like, on the History Channel and stuff. But I, I just think at this point they weren't sleeping in the same bed. The, uh, page 10, I love the shot of all the heroes running into action, yelling for America and democracy. Mm-hmm. Um... I especially like how Superman looks in that shot right there. Yes, I'm going off to kick some ass. And then Do you know who the artist is? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Do you know who the, the artist is on this page? I was trying to determine I that. It was Hoberg. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I it was. And then we have all the villains running into action, which is not as epic. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got to I mean, admit, he, this page makes me feel like... It makes me feel bad because I look at this and it's like, who the hell are these people? And I'm usually really good with the obscure comic book stuff. Not a freaking yeah, but, clue who. But these are all guys are. that appeared once and never again. Yeah, right. Or, it's, or, yeah, or that's so seldom. Exactly. Uh, boring and Ordway make a great team. 
I especially loved their uh, Who's Who entry for the Earth 2 Superman, and I believe they did the Secret Origin issue. Yes. Uh, which, uh, I don't know if we've decided whether or not we're going to be covering those or not. I would uh, love to. I, I, yeah, me too. Because at that point, we're going to be out of uh, All-Star Squadron for a couple of months until Young All-Stars picks up. So I just noticed something. I can't believe I missed this, having read this damn book as many times as I have in prep for this episode. Look at page 15, the second, and especially the third panel. Uh, most especially the third panel. You've got Superman flying in from the right side of the panel, and that thing that's shooting at him, it looks like the freaking Enterprise. I never even noticed that. Actually, before. yeah, you're right. Doesn't it does. It? <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's a little wonky, but, I mean, it's close enough. It looks like it's shooting like the main deflector dish at him. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, that is cool. No, this was a good thing, except for the fact that Johnny Thunder showed up. Uh, I liked the two-page spread of uh, the the heroes battling their foes. It, you really didn't need to see this played out again and again and again. Uh, you know, at this point, Carmine Infantino's art on The Flash really wasn't my cup of tea. No, me. Uh, you know, there's the joke that it looks like he was drawing with a ruler. That seems to be kind of led up a little bit here. And, yeah, Joan, Joan just threatened to tell everybody that he was bad in bed. Wow. <laughs> uh, I love Don Newton's Batman. I just don't think he had a really good handle on the symbol on Batman's chest. No. It looks really small. Uh, but, having said that, everything else looks awesome. He really draws that 40s Batmobile in a great way. It's just awesome to see that. Um, Green Lantern section, you know... It, did a kid just die? Yeah, that kid gets crushed by a Holy tree. Crap. Um, Our Man and Starman, like you, I think uh, it's it's the artistic highlight. Uh, I especially like on page twenty nine the, the the villain going fall, curse you, fall, and he's got his hand all gnarled mm-hmm. up. It just just looks great. the The thing that this proves, though, is that as cool as as Perez and uh, Ordway are as an artistic team, and as awesome as they make Starman look, you cannot make Our Man's cape not look like a towel. Uh, no matter how well you draw <laughs> it, it still looks like a towel. Um, I actually kind of like the Doctor Fate section artistically, but again, I think this is, I think it served the the story. But it was really jarring when we went back to Rick Hoberg. It's oh, just yeah. like, holy crap. <laughs> well, it's a very modern art style. You know? Yeah. And and a lot of this stuff in here, I mean, granted, you know, so are Perez and, uh, and Ordway and Newton and these other ones. But I, it's just not as jarring as Giffen's. Giffen's just, uh, there's something, I don't know, I wish I had more words for describing art. But, you know, I'm no art critic, but... You know, I think a lot of it's the abstract nature, if that's the correct term, of Giffen's art style here. And you, to go from that, as you say, right back to a very classic style is like, whoa, wait, what happened there? <laughs> the uh, There is an answer to the, the question I'm about to ask. And the question is, why are Lois and Joan there? And the answer is to explain how they got to stay young. Right. But really, outside of that, why the hell would you bring them? <laughs> right. So, but, you know, whatevs. I'm okay. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I like the, how will it affect us? Do you know? Easy, girl. He said that time or whatever it was came into us, not out of us. Easy yourself, Joan. Remember, not everybody has a boyfriend who trips through the fourth dimension like I do. Now... I was trying to think of characters that I thought had been affected by this story or by the the radiation or whatever the hell this is that Ian Carkle douses them with. And I was really racking my brains. And then I thought of, um, like, say, Wildcat. I'm pretty sure that that's been this explanation, this very blanket explanation of, oh, you know, this radiation has kept them young. I'm almost positive I've read at least one story where where that explanation I thought it was his nine lives was also a plot. Well, I, I think retroactively it became the nine lives, but then I got to thinking 
I think I may have also read that characters that spent time in the presence of these people that had been doused with this radiation, they, they kind of absorbed it. Yeah. So it, am, I, am I crazy or did I actually, am uh, I remembering I, that right? I, I think that's uh, th- that sounds right to me too. That's what I kept actually thinking throughout this entire uh, issue is that the people that aren't here, I mean, it's like, you know, some of them are time lost, like Star Spangled Kid was time lost. Right. Uh, but, you know, you don't really have that here. Um, if you're going to have somebody draw historical figures, Jerry Ordway is the guy to get him to do it. Because oh, yeah. he's very good with photo referencing. And, yeah, the the ending's a little corny, but I actually really liked it. It's just like, oh, they're all the presidents. You know, it's got right. that kind of Twilight Zone ending to it, you know, where, where you realize that the people they were rescuing were going to be the leaders of the free world. Mm-hmm. So, but no, I, 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 I like you, I, I like this story a lot. I remember the first time I read it back in like two, 1999, 2000, when I finally got around to, re, you know, getting my collection completed, I was just like, wow, that's a, it, it struck me as exactly what it was supposed to be. It's an explanation. It's like, how do these characters stay young? And, you know, later on we would, you know, it became kind of a rallying cry amongst fandom that, you know, it's like, Jesus Christ, Jeff Johns just takes the most minuscule facts and he brings it up and blah, blah, blah. But Roy Thomas made an entire career out of doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the entire point of All-Star Squadron, uh, you know, at some at some points in it. So... I mean, it just, I guess it gets grandfathered into not bothering me. Right. Because I, I really liked it. Now, in the, in the text piece, they do explain where, uh, all of the future presidents were, in addition to listing who the villains were, because, you know, like Scott and I, it's just like, who the hell is this guy? Um, I really like it. I like the text page because of that. Uh, but postscript, just for the record, as far as my wife, co-researchers Dan and I could determine, here's what the next eight post-FDR presidents of the United States were doing on or about June 28, 1942. Harry S. Truman, a then-obscure senator, completes physical checkup at Army and Navy Hospital in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Dwight D. Eisenhower, still some weeks away from his first national fame achieved via Army maneuvers in Texas, leaving Fort Lewis, Washington for a new post in the Lone Star State. John F. Kennedy, recently graduated from college at his family's home in Hyannisport, only lately returned from a trip to South America. Lyndon B. Johnson, U.S. congressman, losing a senatorial election as native Texas. Richard Nixon, young lawyer, and his wife Pat had served their had saved their money to take an inexpensive cruise to the Caribbean via fruit boat, though RN was apparently seasick most of the time. So they were the couple that were saved by uh was that fate? Yeah, yes. fate. Gerald Ford just setting up a new law practice uh, as half of Ford and Buchan in Michigan. Jimmy Carter had just graduated high school in Plains, Georgia. Ronald Reagan, movie actor, working at Warner Brothers on King's Row, which was mo- which most films historians consider his finest role, at least prior to 1981. <laughs> so, uh, just just a fun little text piece uh, there, and that's all I got. I uh, I enjoyed it. I do like the the twist with the presidents. I think that's neat, and it's and it's fun what to speculate twist. about the ninth, the ninth target, the one that died. You know, the the kid that died. Who you know, where would he have fallen in the in the pecking order? Because this stops, of course, with uh, does it stop with Bush? Does it stop with? No, it stops with Reagan, right? Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of Bush because Bush was mentioned in the uh, All Star Companion, but it stops with Reagan. So potentially, is it Bush that's quote unquote out of place because of that kid's death? It's interesting Might to be. speculate. But yeah, uh, that was they didn't really go into it all that much. I guess it was just one of those story points that you do and that, that you just kind of drop and then walk away, right? So, but. But yeah, just just a fun little, you know, it's what an annual should be, basically, in my opinion. Uh, it, it should be kind of like a story that, 
that fits into the to the regular run. You know, it's just like you know, at one point they were doing it where the the main story continues into the annual, which was kind of a dodgy proposition in the eighties. Right. Yeah. Newsstand distribution was still kind of high. Uh, you know, like the main source of where people got their comics. So when you have an annual like this, you do, you know, you can, you can either do something big like that, or you can take the time to tell a story that, you know, you may not have the time for. And at this point in the main book, as we will be discussing, uh, very soon, uh, there is a certain big red cheese running around. <laughs> uh, oh, so excited about this. <laughs> So that's another re- that's another good reason about this issue ending. We get to move on to that. I, I just want to say though, I agree with you that uh, annuals, to, to my mind, so often they were they were kind of throwaway, or worse yet, they were easily skipped in a lot of instances. Like easily skipped in the sense of, oh, I don't need to buy that because so few of them seemed like they were truly relevant. This one here, it, it's kind of important. It doesn't play into the narrative that's currently going on in the main book storyline, but at the same rate, it's giving you a piece of of a puzzle. I like that. It makes the book relevant. It makes the story relevant as opposed to, eh, let's just throw out an annual this year and, oh, who cares? Let's just grab the, the new kid that's trying to break into comics. Yeah, his art sucks and he's not very good, but we need to try to, you know, just pump out a book. That became the feel of so many annuals over the year. And it's probably, oh, yeah. honestly, I don't have a whole lot of annuals in my collection for even for series that I love. Cause most of them were just kind of irrelevant. So, uh, you know, that, that adds a sense of, Hey, I actually needed to, to have this in my collection because it was a story that uh, again, it's off referenced. So it, it's nice to own it. If that makes Absolutely. sense. So, on that note, do we know for sure what we're doing next time? Are we doing uh, All-Star 36? I believe we are. Sweet. All-Star Squadron number 36, which is a cross-dimensional story where we get to finally see... Well, we've seen it before, chronologically, but at least on this show, for the first time, we get to see Captain Marvel and Superman going at each other and actually fighting... Instead of getting really close, but then (laughs) they don't fight. I love, love the cover for the next time. And I'm just, the the cover blurb is a perfect tease for next episode. Earth Earth 2's Greatest Heroes versus the Power of Shazam. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. 
Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 